0: Today, we're going to wrap up the book of Philippians. And so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and grab that and make your way to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to wrap up uh, the book, God willing, uh, this morning. Just by way of reminder, if you are new, Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison back to uh, what I believe to be his favorite church in the world. It was a church located in a city called uh, Philippi. Paul loved these guys and these gals in a very deep way, and he's writing this letter both to encourage them, but also to, I think, challenge them in some key areas of their lives. Now, this church in Philippi had uh, just sent a guy on a mission trip, a guy named Epaphroditus, um, and they had sent him all the way to Rome to find Paul. And he had a, a financial gift that he was to give Paul so that Paul could continue his ministry and could continue to plant uh, new churches. So Paul has now received the gift from his home church in Philippi, and he is, he is writing back, okay? And so that's the context that we're gonna step into this morning. We're gonna start in verse 10 of chapter four. This is the apostle Paul writing. He says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, here's what's happening. The church in Philippi had partnered with the apostle Paul in the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus for quite a number of years now. Now, this may be hard for some of you to believe, especially if you're one of the younger generations here, but this is before the day. There, there was no social media. So no Facebook, no Insta, no staff, right? Not even any cell phones or emails, right? They, so they had no way of keeping up with the apostle Paul as he moved from city to city and nation to nation, sharing the good news about Jesus with people and planting new churches for new believers. And so his home church in Philippi had lost track of him. Now, occasionally somebody would come through their city and they would say, hey, the Apostle Paul is in this city and these are his needs. And so they typically would send somebody to him with an offering. And, uh, but apparently they had lost track of him. And maybe it's been a couple of years by this point. Finally, they get wind somehow. I guess somebody came through their town. They said, hey, guess what? We found out the Apostle Paul is actually in Rome right now. He's, he's in a Roman prison. And he has these particular needs. And so they find out about it. They send a sizable financial gift to him in prison. And so the apostle Paul is saying, your concern for me has now been revived, okay? Now, this is a gardening term. And he's essentially saying, your concern for me has now blossomed, He's saying, I know you didn't have opportunity. I haven't heard from you in a couple years. That's not your fault. I know you didn't have opportunity because you lost track of me. And so Paul is now saying, I rejoice greatly in the Lord for you. Now, this is an important point, I think. And I want you to see Paul's humble gratitude uh, to God for his faith family, the Philippian church. He was incredibly grateful for his brothers and sisters. As you read this letter, his love for them and his gratitude, his affection, his care for them is almost palpable, like it jumps off the pages as you read his words to, the, to them. There was like this, this uh, intimacy. There was this closeness that these brothers and sisters in this church family shared with one another. They had this deep care and concern and sacrificial love for each other as they partnered together to advance the kingdom of Jesus. I was reminded a couple of weeks ago as we were meeting with a Turkish pastor, we have a picture of this brother. And uh, this guy, I just, I can't tell you enough good things about this brother. Uh, he, he grew up in a, in a Muslim family. So he was, he was Muslim. And uh, through a series of amazing events, and don't have time to share his whole story, maybe, maybe more later, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And God grew him, and he became a pastor. He now uh, pastors probably one of the largest uh, churches in his country. It's about 200 people. His church is about 200 people, which is a mega church over there. Right? So, just to give you a little context, uh, his country has a population of about 80 million people. Okay? So, just kind of picture that 80 million people. And he was telling us, as we met with his team, that their best estimates, the best they can tell, there are about uh, 5,900 actual followers of Jesus Christ in the nation of 80 million people. That's 5,900 believers in a country of 80 million people. So it's quite possible to be born in that country as a Muslim and live your entire life and never, not one single time, meet a follower of Jesus Christ or hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that just for a minute. And then I want you to to think about the love and appreciation our Turkish brothers and sisters must have for one another. Well, they're all they have, right? They have to rely on each other in ways that we never have as American Christians, right? They don't have a new, a different church on every street corner in their city. And I think as American Christians, man, if we aren't careful, we, here's what can happen. Unintentionally, um, we, we can begin to take one another for granted. We can begin to take this for granted, this family for granted, right? And so we never really invest for some of us. We never really get to know other people. We never really put ourselves out there. We, we never really get involved because we just kind of assume somewhere in the back of our minds that this will always be here for us. And if not, who cares, right? Because there's 500 other churches within like a three-mile radius So if we're not careful, we can kind of just live our lives and we can treat church, the church family, the body of Christ and its local expression like a commodity. Or even worse, like something that we do on the weekends or a place that we go on the weekends when we don't have something else better to do. And that's tragic. And so as American Christians, we can live our entire lives without ever experiencing this deep type of love, Care, affection, appreciation for an actual church family. So believer, here's here's truth number one. Believer, number one, we need to nurture in our hearts gratitude for the body of Christ. We need to nurture, care, and gratitude for the body of Jesus Christ. We need to learn to care for one another in a deep way, to love each other, to appreciate one another, to be grateful for one another. As one pastor said, we, we aren't like a family, we are a family in Jesus. We need to learn to, to live like it. So, so here's a, a personal application uh, for you this week, or I'll give you, go ahead and give you a personal application on the front end. If you're a part of this faith family, here, here's a challenge that I wanna lay before you. I wanna challenge you to find one person in this church family. If you're a part of this church family, if you're a guest this morning, find somebody in your neighborhood, your workplace, but if you're a part of this community, you consider this your faith home. I wanna challenge you to find one person in this faith family to love on or to encourage in a practical way this week. So I want you to intentionally email somebody, text somebody, write them a handwritten note, Grab them in the lobby and just say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I just wanna encourage you. You're an encouragement to, to me, and I wanna tell you why. Go buy a gift card somewhere, surprise somebody, make somebody's day, make somebody's week. Personally, I feel very encouraged by gift cards to nice restaurants <laughs> and exotic vacations, just, I mean, for the record. Paul was so grateful for his church family in Philippi. May we follow his example that he laid before us of deepening our love and our appreciation for our faith family. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, he says, for I have learned in whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned, underline this, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul goes, listen, man, man I am so grateful to the Lord for you guys and for your generosity towards me, but I want you to know that I've learned to be content in every situation and circumstance in life. I want you to know that my happiness and my contentment is not contingent upon you guys sending me money or your generosity towards me because I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Now, from what we can tell about the Apostle Paul, uh, he likely came from a family that had some, some means, Scholars believe that Paul was highly educated, so he would have had the equivalent of a PhD, some say a double PhD. He was an influential religious leader. When he walked through the, the, the streets of his city in Jerusalem, people would have known who he was, right? Paul had experienced some measure of wealth in his life. And then if you know his story, he then meets Jesus on a road to a city called Damascus to persecute Jesus and the followers of Jesus. Jesus absolutely revolutionizes his life and Paul begins to plant churches all over the known world and he suffers greatly in the process. And I wanna show you what I mean. These verses will be on the screens for you. This is Paul writing to another church in another city called Corinth. Listen to how Paul describes his life as he follows a heart after Jesus. This is 1 Corinthians 4. He says, To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. He writes to the same church in another letter in 2 Corinthians. He writes this. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, And riots, that sounds fun. Who wants to sign up and follow Jesus now, right? In hard work and sleepless nights and hunger and purity, understanding, patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love and truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich in the gospel, having nothing and yet possessing everything that matters. Paul knew what it was to have everything and Paul knew what it was to have nothing. He knew abundance and he knew poverty well. And here's his point, and you need to hear this. Contentment is not based on circumstance. And some of you really need to hear that and apply that this morning because some of you are believing the lie that your contentment, your joy, your happiness is contingent upon you having something or getting something in your life. And the Apostle Paul is saying, it is not. True joy, true happiness, true contentment is not contingent upon what is happening around you or to you. Now, if we were honest this morning and we're in church, so I hope that we, we would be, almost all of us would have to admit that we struggle with contentment on some level. See, because for most of us, we're content as long as everything is going our way. Right? So when we have perfect health, when we have plenty of money in the bank, when everyone in our life is doing exactly what we think they ought to be doing, we're happy, which means we're like happy for two minutes every year. right? <laughs> and when any one of those things doesn't happen, what tends to happen is we become discontent. And this isn't all that surprising when you consider that our culture actually teaches us how to be discontent. Our society actually disciples us in the art of discontentment. Uh, Just think about uh, marketing, just to use uh, one one example. Marketing in our culture, in our society, is built on creating discontentment, right? As soon as you buy a car, it could be a new car, it could be a used car, as soon as you buy a new iPhone, whatever it is, it doesn't, man, it's not six months before they're sending you little mailers in the mail telling you why the thing that you just bought six months ago is now obsolete, right? And now it's time to trade it in and you start to think, man, well, maybe I do really need that moonroof that's like half an inch wider. Like, that probably would make my life better. Or maybe I really should trade this car in because that, man, that car, the new version's got 10 speakers instead of eight speakers, and that's really gonna revolutionize my life. I mean, this, this new iPhone has a 9.5-inch a screen instead of a 9.25-inch screen. And that's just gonna rock my, that's gonna change everything for me. That's gonna change my whole life. And we buy into this and we live in this constant cycle of discontentment, chasing things that we're told are gonna make us happy or give us contentment. And Paul, Paul is hitting pause on that cycle and he's saying, believer, Listen to me, that's a lie. This is is a lie, it's it's not true. Look back at uh, verse 12, halfway through verse 12 with me. This is what Paul says. He says, I have learned, underline this, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul is saying the key to contentment is a secret so, so he's saying, hey, I, want, I want you to listen up because this secret is not known by many people because it's not obvious on the surface. So he goes, hey, listen, listen up, listen up. It's a secret. So, so here's the secret to contentment. It's not money. It's not power. It's not perfect health. Here it is. This, the secret is this. Whether I'm in rags or in a palace, when I have Jesus, I have it all. That's the secret. He's saying when you have the savior, you have everything that matters in the end because he is ultimately the only one who brings real and lasting contentment to the human condition and the human heart. And so here's truth number two from the text this morning. Number two, Jesus is the secret to contentment. When Jesus is all you have, you find that he's all you actually need. He is the secret to a contented heart. King Solomon wrote an entire book on this in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. If you haven't read that in a while, let me encourage you, uh, make that uh, your personal reading this week, right? So, so Solomon writes Ecclesiastes. He tries everything under the sun to find joy, happiness, and satisfaction, right? So he, try, he brings in, uh, the best entertainers in the world to entertain him. He builds all these palaces and luxurious gardens, right? He tries materialism like nobody in the world had ever known or seen. He tries sexual con- conquest in ways that nobody else had. And his conclusion after trying all of it is this, nothing satisfies. I tried it all. None of it made my heart content, and his ultimate conclusion after trying it all is contentment is only found in God. And so Solomon was saying thousands of years before Paul what he's saying to us right here in the book of Philippians, and that is Jesus is the secret to contentment. Now, let me, let me upset some of you because I have one portion in every message where I try to upset people. So I'm just letting you know, this is that portion. All right, so it's, it's coming. Um, when Paul says we can do all things through Christ who, th- who strengthens us, he does not mean that we can do anything we want. All right, so this is one of the most misquoted verses in the entire Bible. Now, you've probably seen an athlete or a, a sports team at a Christian school or at a Christian college wearing a T-shirt with this verse on it and look, I'm not throwing, if you did that, cool. I'm not throwing any stones at you. I probably misused this verse at, at different points in, in my walk as well. But here, here's the deal. You need to understand this. It is, it is really dangerous to remove verses from their context. Like really dangerous. Like this is how we develop cults and heresies of various kinds, so I'm just gonna speak from a, a personal place this morning for, for me. Listen, there are a lot of things that I cannot do. So of you're thinking, yeah, brother, we know there are a lot of things you cannot do. Look, I, I can train really hard for the next year in hopes of dunking a basketball. And guess what's not gonna happen? I'm not gonna dunk a basketball. You know Why? I'm a five foot nine white dude. It's not in the cards for me. It's not. In, it's not. It's not happening for me. No matter how many times I quote Philippians 4:13, it's not going to happen. Now I may want to grow wings, sprout wings, so I can fly, fly away. That's not going to happen either. No matter how many times I read Philippians 4:13. Now could God perform a miracle somehow? Yeah, sure, sure he could. But this verse is so misused in our church culture. Listen to me. Je- Jesus did not die and rise from the dead so your basketball team could win state. All right? He just, he just didn't. Jesus did not die and rise from the dead so that you could get an A on the test that you didn't study for. You can't walk into your test, oh, I'm claiming the promises of Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not on Jesus. That's on you because you didn't study. Right? So in context, Paul is saying, I can do all things. I can be content in abundance and in poverty. I can do those things through Christ who strengthens me. You guys following that? That's way different. Big difference between that and how many people misuse that verse in our church culture in America. Jesus did not die so you could beat your personal best in the half marathon or the turkey trot next month. I hope you crush it. That's not why he came and died. So Paul is saying the secret to contentment is knowing the Savior, Jesus Christ, in any and all circumstances because all else will eventually fail you and leave you empty. He's saying Jesus is all. He is all that matters and that's his point. So friends, stop misusing that verse, okay? I love you all. Don't email me this week. All right, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership. That's an important word, underline that. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul shifts now to talking about his partnership with his church back in Philippi. And he goes, listen, when nobody else walked with me, when everybody else turned their back on me, when I was forgotten in prison, you never wavered, Philippian church, Never, not once. You never even flinched. You have partnered with me again and again. Not just in prayer, not just in encouragement, but you actually put some skin in the game. You guys put your money where your mouth is in order to advance the mission of Jesus around the world. And you've actually sent people right on mission trip to help me. You've sent Epaphroditus. They'd likely sent other, ch- other people from their church to help the Apostle Paul and to partner with him. And so Paul says, you have been true partners with me in the mission of Jesus. And for that, I am forever grateful. Now, I want you to understand something. This, this is the, the type of church that we want New Life to be. Partnering with our brothers and sisters around the world must be more than, man, man, we just hope the best for them. God bless them. We hope the Holy Spirit helps these 5,900 believers in a nation of 80 million people. Just hope that God helps them out and things go well. That is not enough. In our recent vision trip overseas, we met a man who's leading an amazing work in the country of Egypt, as they share the good news of Jesus uh, in really incredible, creative ways through media, a lot of social media stuff. And uh, they've seen a lot of Muslims come to faith. And he was, he was telling us, our team of four from New Life, along with his Egyptian team in this meeting that we had, he was telling us that they recently had the privilege of leading the nephew of the most powerful Islamic cleric in their nation to faith in Jesus Christ. The nephew, the most powerful man in that country just came to faith in Christ. Now, you need to understand this. This this brother, our brother, is now homeless, living in the streets of Cairo under persecution. They don't know if he's gonna make it. Oftentimes, these people will be killed. They'll just disappear, and you'll never hear from them again. But what they were telling us is if they can typically, historically, if they can survive for one year, the pressure begins to relent. And so they're praying for this brother because if he makes it, he could be a huge linchpin in a gospel movement in Egypt because of all the connections and the family connections that he has in that country. So y'all pray for this brother. I want you all to pray for this brother, that God would have mercy on him, that God would spare him, that God would raise him up as a leader in the Egyptian church. But listen, I want you to understand, this team in Egypt has invited us to come alongside of them and to partner in this work. To partner with them as the church in Philippi partnered with the apostle Paul. To put some skin in the game, to pray for them, yes, to give to them financially, yes, but also to go and be a part of the work. To partner with them in the advancement of the mission and the kingdom of Jesus. And we'll have the opportunity to dig into that in more detail in the weeks and months ahead, especially as we get into October. If you've been around here a while, you know that's kind of our missions month. We just kind of hit pause on everything and we kind of recalibrate around our mission. We talk about why it is that we exist as the Church of Jesus Christ. So we'll do that this October. That's coming up soon, just a, I guess about a month or so. Just so you know, if you're a part of our faith family, maybe you're new here, at the end of every October, we collect a missions offering. We call that the Send Missions Offering, and that goes to fund our local partnerships here in the city in Asheville, other partnerships that we have in other places in the states, as well as global partnerships in hard places like Turkey and Egypt and all of these places. God has given us incredible partnerships and he's now giving us more incredible partnership opportunities. So, so the, the question for us is, is, is really only whether or not we are going to step into the opportunities that he is laying before us in bold obedience or whether we're just gonna be satisfied continuing to play church. And so, you know, as a church, like we're we're stepping in (laughs) there and probably other places. We want to invite you to come alongside and be a part of this gospel work, this gospel partnership that God is doing all over the world. Because the reality is that's what set the Philippian church apart. What set the Philippian church apart was that they were not just a group of takers, They weren't just a group of spiritual consumers like many Christians and sadly many churches are. They weren't just receivers or spectators. They wanted in the game. They wanted a piece of the action. They understood that they had the privilege and the responsibility of partnership in the mission of Jesus. Now this is beautifully illustrated in a passage in 2 Corinthians 8. This will also be in the screens for you. This is Paul writing, describing this church in Philippi, or several churches in Philippi. Listen to this. He says, now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, Macedonia was a district. Philippi was a city inside the district of Macedonia. So he's talking about the Philippian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. So this is not a wealthy church. Understand that. So overflowing joy, extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So they're, they're given more than they should. They're given more than they have. They're giving until it hurts. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So these guys and gals, out of their poverty, they are literally begging the Apostle Paul, let us give more. We wanna be a part of what God is doing all over the world. And so they gave beyond their means. They gave beyond what their budget Suggested they could give or should give. They would have driven Dave Ramsey crazy, right? This church was fired up about Jesus and they wanted to be a part of what he was doing all around the world. And church, may it be so of us. Every church is known for something May we be known as the church that burns with a fiery passion to see Jesus made famous here in Asheville and around the world, whatever it takes and whatever it costs. And so that's truth number three this morning from the text. Number three, the mission of Jesus is fueled by kingdom partnership. The mission of Jesus is fueled by kingdom partnership. And our dream here at New Life is not just to send out short-term teams. We we are gonna do that. We've done that historically over the course of our 22-year history. We're gonna continue to do that. And we hope that many of you will go on these one-week, two-week trips that we offer. But our dream is that some of you would go for months and some of you would even go for years. Our dream is that some of you young people, if you're in high school getting ready to graduate, if you're in college, Our dream is that some of you would give a semester away to the cause of global partnership with these people around the world. That you would take three or four months and you would go and be a part of what God is doing in these areas of the world. Our prayer is that some of you would leverage your career Whether you're a school teacher or a doctor or an engineer, and say, Look, I'm going to take six months. I'm going to take a year. I'm going to take two years. I'm going to take three years. I'm going to take my life and I'm going to invest it in kingdom partnership. Our prayer is that some of you would take your retirement and you would leverage it for the kingdom of Jesus. If not all of it, then give us a year, give us two years, give us six months. But we are going to work hard to begin to develop these pathways for that to happen here at New Life and for that to become the culture here. This is the way the kingdom of Jesus expands. We must partner with our brothers and sisters locally and globally to see the name of Jesus exalted among all nations. They cannot accomplish the Great Commission by themselves, and neither can we. But together, we can flip this world upside down for Jesus. I'm convinced of that. And so let me just challenge you this morning not to just be a taker as a Christian, not to just be a receiver of religious goods on Sunday morning, not to simply be a church attender, but to increasingly move toward being a player in the game to move towards engagement in the mission, to become a partner in what Jesus is doing both in Asheville and around the world in some really dark places spiritually. Verse 17, Paul says, not that I seek the gift, their, their financial gift, not that I seek that, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, this is fascinating. Paul, obviously, he's he's grateful for their financial gift, right? Clearly, he's he's gonna use it to expand the kingdom of Jesus, to plant new churches, like all that good stuff. But he's saying, you need to understand, that's not what I'm after. I'm not about your money. I'm not about getting rich. Ultimately, I'm about your fruitfulness. So he's saying to these believers in this church in Philippi, he's saying, listen, I want you to store up your treasure in heaven. He's interested in them being about the right things in life. He wants to see them free from idols like greed and materialism, right? These idols that promise us happiness and joy and satisfaction. And as you all know, they deliver nothing but depression and anxiety. And Paul is saying, listen, I'm happy because I see this fruit in your lives. It gives me me joy because your generosity is fruit in the kingdom of God. And he's saying, keep it up. This is good for your soul, believer, and it's good for the kingdom of God. Verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and more. So this is a sizable, generous financial gift from his church home. He says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, this is the guy who went on the mission trip to to Rome to see him, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul says, listen, Ultimately, this offering wasn't given to me by you. Now, if you were in the Philippian church, you'd probably be thinking, what are you talking about, man? (laughs) I was there. We took up the offering. We gave it to Epaphroditus. He hand-delivered it to you. Of course, you received the offering from us. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Ultimately, your generous sacrifice was, listen, it was a fragrant offering to God. Ultimately, it wasn't a gift to me. Ultimately, it was a gift to God. And I want you to know that it pleases him. So believer, understand this. When you give, like, yes, in a sense, you're giving to the the ministries of this church. But if you believe the words of Paul, in the ultimate sense, you aren't giving to this church. You're giving to God as an act of worship. And one of the reasons that we still pass the basket when we gather on Sunday mornings to worship, even though, like, Over half of you give online now, which is totally fine. I do that sometimes, too. You can worship even that way. But the reason that we still pass the basket in corporate worship is because we believe that giving is a part of our worship, right? Because ultimately, you aren't just giving to your church. Ultimately, if you believe Paul, you are giving to your God. And your sacrificial financial obedience, he says, not me, he says, is like a beautiful aroma to God. It's like a beautiful aroma to God. And so truth number four this morning is this. Generosity pleases God and it advances the mission of Jesus. That's like a double bonus, right? It pleases God and it advances the mission of Jesus. What's not to like about that? It does both of these things. All right, verse 19. And my God he says, will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's way of saying, believer, trust in God. Trust in God. Now, this is a promise specifically for followers of Jesus who are living in obedience by living generous lives in the kingdom of God. So Paul goes, listen, if, if you trust God, And you live generously in his kingdom. Here's the promise. God will supply every single need you have. Every single one. Now notice he didn't say every want we have. But the promise is he will supply every single need that we have. Now what do we need? We all need salvation. We all need grace. Grace. We all need forgiveness, we all need hope, we all need peace, we all need our daily bread, our daily provisions, and all of that God promises to give us if we will trust Jesus and live generous lives in his kingdom. And see, a lot of us, I think, would say, we would articulate with our mouths that we trust God. Like if I stopped you and we were both getting coffee in the morning between services or something like that, and I were to just lean over and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, do you trust God? Most of you'd be like, man, you're weird. Why are you asking me that? But secondly, yeah, I'm in church. That's why I'm here. Yeah, I trust God. But the problem is a lot of us don't live our lives like we trust God. This is why so many of us are greedy. This is why so many of us hoard our money and our stuff because at the end of the day, we don't trust God. This is why so many of us stress out when we just get the, just a a tiny bit sick, right? And we go on Google and decide that we're about to die. We don't trust God. This is why so many of us won't put ourselves out there to know other people and be known by other people in a Bible study or a community group, because at the end of the day, the bottom line is we don't trust God. And Paul is saying, believer, listen to me, you can trust God. You should trust God. If you love and follow Jesus, you must trust God. And so believer, friend, let's learn to to live together these generous lives as we trust God in his kingdom to provide for all of our needs. He is a good and gracious father. And that's the challenge ultimately that we get from the apostle Paul. This is the final truth, number five. It's a very simple one, but a very profound one. Paul says, trust God, believer. Trust God. In every circumstance, whether it's going great or whether it's going terrible, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're sick or you're healthy, learn to trust God because he is good and he will care for your needs. Verse 20, he says, To our God and Father be the glory forever." And ever, amen. Now, I wish I had more time to dig in here. I don't. Paul is simply reminding them that this whole thing isn't about him and it's not about them. It's about God's glory. So he's saying, let's live for God and his glory, not our own. Now, this life that Paul is describing is paradoxically the life that gives us the most joy, right, when we're not living for ourselves or our glory, but when we are instead living fully sold out and committed for God and his glory. That's the life that gives us joy and satisfaction. Verse 21, he says this, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. I love this. Especially those of Caesar's household. Now, I love this. Paul Paul says, listen, all all the believers that I'm with, they, they send their love and their greetings back to you, especially those in Caesar's household. This is Paul's way of telling them that my suffering is advancing the kingdom of Jesus. There are now people in Caesar's palace who believe and who are following Jesus and they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Friend, the gospel is powerful. Do not be afraid to share this glorious news with the people in your life. All will not believe, but some will believe. So like Paul, let's tell everybody in our lives this great news about Jesus and trust God to do good things with it. He closes in verse 23. He says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So he brings it back at the end to the gospel of grace. And he's reminding these believers that everything that he's told them in this entire letter, all of it is only possible so far as they press into the power of Jesus. He's reminding them that Jesus is the one who empowers us to live a life of joy or a life of contentment, a life full of trust in God in every circumstance. Like, listen, we can't do that on our own. We can't, I can't. Because in our flesh, we are are too broken, we are too weak, we are too easily distracted. But Paul is saying, as we learn to walk with Jesus, as we learn to, to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day, as we learn to press into his love and his power, this abundant life is possible for us. And it's not just possible for us, this is actually the life that Jesus has designed for his followers to live in. And this is really good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which guides us into the knowledge of who you are. Father, thank you for Jesus, by whom we are set free from sin, our own sin, Set free from death, God. Thank you for the spirit who indwells us even at this moment for those of us who have trusted and follow you and he guides us intimately in this life, God. Help us, teach us to trust in you fully, Father. Would you help us to see that that we can that you are a good God, that you are a trustworthy God, that we we should live our lives in complete surrender and trust to you, God. Help our hearts be content in you. And God, I pray for the person who is here this morning, who maybe has not yet been given a new heart by you by placing their faith and their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and new life. God, would you begin to plant that seed in their heart, in their minds, in their souls, even right now, God? For the person here, maybe they're a skeptic. Maybe there are walls that are built up after years different things in their life. God, would you begin to tear those down? Would you begin to penetrate those hearts? Would you begin to enlighten people's hearts that they could see your goodness and your glory? Father, so that they could experience the freedom and the contentment that's only found in the forgiveness that Jesus offers. We ask this and the name that stands above every other name, the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Church, let's stand and sing.